Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. If this is a story, it's one with no right ending. If this is a dream, it's a dream made solid, a dream grown to a little boy with a waist and shoulders, calves that wrap around his mother's hips. This is G.P. Gottlieb, host of New Books and Literature for the New Books Network, and I've just quoted a passage from Lucky Boy, a beautiful novel by author Shanti Sekran, with whom I'm speaking today. Lucky Boy is about an undocumented immigrant whose young child is put into foster care while she's detained, mistreated, and prevented from contacting the lawyer who's trying to help her. Lucky Boy is also about Kavya and Rishi Reddy, an Indian-American couple who decide to adopt a child after struggling unsuccessfully with exhausting and costly infertility treatments. It's a moving, timely story. Hi, Shanti. Thank you for joining me today. Thanks so much for having me. So I'd like to start by asking you to tell us a little bit about yourself. Like, where'd you go to school? Tell us about your education. Well, so I started off in Sacramento, where I was born, and and I uh, went to UC Berkeley for my undergrad. When I was there, I did a BA in English literature and French, and then I moved on to do sort of an MA in South Asian studies at Berkeley mostly because I didn't know what else to do. And then I sort of got the writing bug. I started writing when I was about 22, 23, and went on to a MFA at Johns Hopkins in Baltimore. And from there, eventually did a PhD in England at the University of Newcastle. Hmm. And is this your first novel? This is actually my second. Um, so I had a novel that came out in 2008 called The Prayer Room. And that was, it was a very different novel. It was sort of a family story, comedy, drama sort of thing. And uh, that was technically my first. But this is like my first big novel, I guess. Uh, so as a first-generation American, how did coming from an immigrant family figure in the writing of this novel? This was, you know, being being the daughter of immigrants was absolutely crucial to my ability to write this novel. Um, for one thing, there's Kavya's, Kavya and Rishi, their end of the story is very much based in the experiences that I had growing up with, with Indian parents in an Indian American community. Um, and I think, you know, writing sort of very much outside of my experience for Soli's part of the story I really had to access what I could from my own family's story. Um, and I soon began to learn about the discrepancies of experience between my family and someone like Soli. And that was a really valuable learning experience as well. Mm-hmm. The book opens with Kavya Reddy putting on a black silk sari to attend a wedding. Can you introduce Kavya and Rishi and talk about Kavya's rivalry with the bride? Sure. So Kavya and Rishi are two Berkeleyites. They went to UC Berkeley like me. They're Indian American. Kavya is kind of a, she's kind of a brown sheep. She 
I didn't follow the sort of traditional doctor, lawyer, engineer, academic routes that a lot of Indian parents look for in their kids. She realized that she had a real passion for food and cooking, and she became a chef. And I think this defines a lot of who she is. She she finds out what works for her and who she is, and she follows that. Um, Rishi, her husband, works for a, a Silicon Valley company called Weebies, and he's an engineer. He's he's more in the sciences. Um, and the two of them, you know, they're they're a loving couple. They're happily married. They have this beautiful Berkeley life, but they're not able to have children. And that's where we meet them when they're kind of in the middle of that struggle. And Kavya, when you first meet her, she's getting ready for this wedding. And the wedding is for her friend, Preeti. Preeti is this girl that, that she sort of grew up with um, as best friends and, and frenemies. And Preeti is sort of the, the icon of what every Indian American young woman should be. She's highly educated. She's beautiful. She's gracious. She's well-spoken. She's, she's everything you would want in a daughter. And Kavya sort of grew up being compared to her again and again by her own mother. Um, hmm. So, yeah, so that, that, that's Kavya. And that, that's sort of an inkling of her, her relationship with Preeti. And you also talk a lot about um, the food that everybody is eating or preparing. There's really lots of yummy sounding stuff going on in this book. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think I write a lot about food. You know, when I did my PhD, the, the critical portion of it was about food and representations of food in Indian American literature. So I think that's always sort of churning in the back of my mind. So Kavya is a chef, and obviously food is going to be very important to her. Food is also um, such an important medium for the immigrant experience and for the community experience. So it comes out again and again, you know, from, from the first page to the last of this book. Mm-hmm. Much of the book, as you said, takes place in Berkeley, California, where you live and are raising your family. And Kavya and Rishi met at UC Berkeley at a time when it was still a progressive community. Can you share your feelings about how it's been transformed into a privileged community where people hire um, undocumented immigrants to clean their homes and raise their children? Yeah. So Berkeley still is pretty progressive. It's, it's progressive and privileged. You have to be pretty privileged to afford to live here for the most part, especially to own a home. Um, that's, you know, I think it's, it, it's something that would be nearly impossible for much of the country. And, we have sort of an ethos here that that is um, very left wing, still very uh, hospitable to people of different uh, gender identities and ethnic identifications and nationalities and and immigration statuses. So we do, you know, we are, we are a city where a lot of people hire undocumented immigrants. Um, I think it's a city where people are pretty conscious of how they treat immigrants, undocumented or, or documented. It's, it's very welcoming to um, people who, are not, who, who would not necessarily be welcomed in other parts of the country. But with it comes a certain amount of entitlement, I think, because of the money that we now have in the city um, and because of the, you know, a certain amount of, of 
self-righteousness that comes with that whole mix. Mm-hmm. Kavya's husband works for, as you said, Weebies, a, a fictional Silicon Valley megapolis. You also call it a, a, on a super site that has cornered the market markets on goods for babies and children. Can you define what makes it both a mega, megapolis and a super site? Is it is it based on something real? So Weebies physically was based on a couple of the companies that I visited in Silicon Valley. Um, one of them was Google. I spent an afternoon with a friend at Google. And when I chose the word megapolis, I think I chose it almost instinctually or poetically even. But when you go there, when you go to the Google campus and, and therefore the Weebies campus, you feel like you're in kind of a city. Um, it's a city unto itself. You know, it's not your average American company where you walk into a building, you go to work and you walk out. This is an entire campus. And the idea of the megapolis for me, I think had more to do with the intensity of the experience of working at a place like Weebies. You know, you go there, uh, you eat for free. There are nap rooms, there are showers, there are multiple gyms. There's, there's everything that you would want out of life, maybe aside from love and companionship at Weebies. You can find it all there. You really never have to leave work. It's one of those companies. Um, so it's a megapolis in the, in, in the sense of what a company could look like. That is so interesting. So it turns out I have been on the campus of a megapolis. My daughter works at um, a hospital software company in Wisconsin that has that sort of feel, uh, like a city unto itself. So when Kavya and Rishi aren't able to get pregnant and start talking about adoption, how is the reaction of Kavya's mother and others in the community different from other cultures' reactions? And what parts of society did you find in your research? Who still views motherhood like we did in the past as a woman's true calling? I'm putting that in quotation marks. Yeah, I think much of society, you know, throughout the world still views motherhood as a woman's true calling, as her sort of central purpose in life, which is uh, problematic for, for a lot of women especially women who are struggling to get pregnant. You know, it really calls into question what they're doing with their lives in a way that, that shouldn't be happening. So within the Indian American community in this book, the, um, the notion of adoption is, for Kavya's mother at least, is a risky one. You know, you're taking in a child who's... Uh, genetic history, whose social history you have had nothing to do with. And for Kavya's family, who have spent so much energy and time thinking about um, cultivating their own daughter and, you know, wanting their own daughter to marry someone like Rishi, who, let's face it, is kind of the ideal Indian American husband. He's, um, he has a good job. He's, He's Indian. He's um, actually that's all it takes to have a good job and be Indian. So he <laughs> he fits the bill. Um, yeah, to to then bring a child into their life who has come from a completely different set of parents for Kavya's mother, especially that's that's a big risk that her daughter is taking. Mm. So the story is also uh, also centers on Solima Castro Valdez who's from a loving family, 
She's not in any imminent danger in Popocalco in Mexico, even though it's a dying village. And she wants to go north to improve her future. Not a bad reason. But can you explain, even though most of us understand that um, something like some small percent actually do get in, why um, why can't she apply for a legitimate path into the United States? Yeah, you know, there really isn't much of a legitimate path available to Mexicans or, or South American or Central American migrants. The three major paths to immigrate legally are through employer-based immigration. This is when your employer sponsors you, and it's a pretty lengthy and costly process. So not a lot of companies or businesses are going to do that, but that's one way. Another way is through family-based immigration. That's if you have a U.S. citizen family member who's willing to sponsor you, which again is pretty costly. And a lot of the migrants like Soli don't have a U.S. citizen relative available to them. And the third major way is through asylum. And um, that, you know, I say it's major, but the numbers are pretty small in terms of how many people we accept. In 2017, I believe it was about 50,000 accepted into the U.S. And the Trump administration has brought that down significantly um, to the point that they're now outlying asylum applications at the southern border against international law. So if you're thinking of, you know, people getting in line, there's virtually no line for them to get into. And if they do, um, if they do attempt the sort of like bureaucratic path to immigration, they could be waiting for years. You know, I've read statistics that say that that certain types of immigrants from Mexico and, and the Philippines have to wait for up to 20 years. Isn't it interesting, just from a historical perspective, that we are speaking, actually ha- having this interview on the very day that the president is planning to let everybody know what he plans to do about the government shutdown over his border wall. So I think your, your book is very timely. Lots of issues. Also interesting that when you think of all the people making the rules, how many of their families came in after the potato famine in Ireland, after the pogroms in Russia, problems, you know, wars, how many of them got here? And now the grandchildren of those people, the great grandchildren are not letting anybody, not wanting other people to come in. Kind of historically interesting. So the village of Popocalco, has grown the same strain of corn for 11,000 years. I found that fascinating. But it's become too expensive to farm and it's now impossible for them to sell. So why don't they rotate crops or do the things that farmers do to ensure that the land doesn't lose its ability to sustain crops? Well, in Soli's case, so I'm not, you know, I'm not an expert on sort of agricultural movements, um, but in Soli's case, in her village, which, which is a fictional village, uh, the corn farming was, it was a way of life. I mean, it was a way of life for thousands of years. And so the people in her village have not found the wherewithal to, to start a new crop. And I think it has something to do with the age of people in her village. She comes from a village where where people are quite old. I mean, the, the, the young people have left. The, the young people didn't um, 
feel the optimism that it would take to say, okay, let's start planting soybeans now. Let's see if that works. You know, and I think the things like NAFTA have sort of drained that, that optimism from a good deal of, of industry south of the border. Um, so that's, you know, just speaking specifically about Soli's story, that's why her village is dying. People are sort of sustenance farmers now. They're, they're making do. They're, they're surviving. But for someone like her, there's not much of a future available at all. Why would her father trust the fleshy Cadillac driving Mudwell to take her safely to the States? That's a good question. You know, her father is um, perhaps a little naive. Her, her parents are not worldly people. They are willing to trust Manuel um, to take their daughter over the border. As they see it, they're giving him a great deal of money. I mean, it's all the money that they can find. It's, it's a good deal of money to them. And they are ensuring or trying to ensure the, the safest, most secure passage for their daughter. And plenty of parents, they, they let their children go on much riskier journeys. And um, it's an exercise in hope and in optimism. I think that's where the optimism goes. She's pretty optimistic. When she runs into serious trouble on her journey north, why doesn't she call her parents and go back home? She considers it. Yeah, I considered that too. You know, why doesn't she call her parents? At this juncture, that's what some people would do for sure. I had to think about my own sort of motivations and I had to sort of go into myself a little bit to answer that question. I think that if I were on a journey like that myself, I would be so focused on the road ahead that to call my parents and say, come get me, you know, that or even to call my parents and say, this is what's happening to me. Um, that would almost be a step backwards. That It would be a way to, to stop the momentum that I'd already built. I would sort of need to almost just be blind to any other possibility, to any possibility of turning back or being saved, just to keep going. Can you talk about the uh, those who the people who were robbing and murdering the poor defenseless passengers by targeting the produce trucks that were um, heading north from Mexico. Why are there highway patrols or why are the drivers armed to protect themselves from what are essentially highway bandits? Yeah, you know, bandits of, of that sort, they're, they're present throughout the journey. Um, they're there on the trains as well. Mm-hmm. So that's a good question. You know, uh, uh, Mexican highways, they're, they're very much like American highways. We don't have a ton of highway patrol. I know they're never there when I need them. So um, the, the roads are, are pretty much as unguarded as they are here. I think there's plenty of opportunity for that sort of crime in the U.S. as well. It just it happens less often. So, um, yeah, you know, the, uh, my understanding of the Mexican government is that they, they're not prioritizing that sort of law enforcement. And when you think about it, you know, the, the fates of undocumented immigrants who are leaving the country are not the primary concern of any government, really. I think refugees, undocumented immigrants, these are the people who 
are left behind by governments who are sort of given up on. Um, this book, as I've mentioned, is about so many things, but Sully's journey and what happens to her child are evocative of what's happening in our country now. So how are you, how, how are you affected by all the news stories about children being separated from their families um, in, in, in the writing of this book? And could you also briefly touch on the loss of Soli's rights once she is detained? Sure, yes. So I started writing this book in 2011 when I didn't really have an inkling of what was going to be happening in, in 2018, 2019. And last year, it was last year, right? Yeah. We, um, we saw children being detained at the border, families being separated. And this really, this was very, very hard for me to watch. And I was very aware um, that I live in Berkeley. I live in this enclave of, of liberalism and um, among people who care very sincerely about immigrants and about these undocumented immigrants. But so many of the people around me were able to watch and know what was happening and feel bad, but still do nothing. And that's kind of what I was writing about and what I was thinking about when this was happening. Um, I myself did whatever I could to fundraise for groups who really could do something like Raices. I donated my July, um, my July royalties to the group. And I got together with another author, Lauren Markham, to raise money for the group. We raised, we had a party basically and raised about $4,000 for the group. So I did what I could um, to harness, you know, whatever help I could. And it's, it's incredible that this is happening in this country, but, but not entirely unbelievable. I think that this is a movement that's been building for almost a decade now, even before Trump. Mm -hmm. And in terms of Soli's treatment in the detention center, so what was going on there was a, mi a mix of the um, the imprisonment system, the, the, the prison system, and the abuse of human rights that, that comes with that, the abuse of power, the po power imbalances that come with that situation, uh, combined with the fact that she's not in a prison, she's in a detention center. And detention centers in the U.S., as I understand it from my research, are very... Um, they're very unestablished. They're, the running of them is very inconsistent, and they're considered to be temporary holding spaces for immigrants. So they're not given the um, systemic regulation and resources that you might find in a prison. So, for example, you know, Soli couldn't get to a phone to phone into court when she needed to or to phone her lawyer when she needed to. And the, um, that, that sort of situation happens. It happens. You never know how many phones are going to be available. There are no uh, regulations around that sort of thing. She couldn't participate in any sort of child welfare system because the detention centers don't care about that. They, there's, there's no infrastructure to allow for a parent to work with the courts to get their child back. I'm just sitting here and sighing and sinking into my chair. 
<laughs> uh, they're privately owned. Some of them also, they're not government run. Is that true? That is true. Yeah. It's, you know, it's a pretty big industry and, and many detention centers are now privately owned. I understand you trained with immigration advocates and with the detention advocacy book uh, group. What was most surprising to you? So what was most surprising to me, I think one of the things that I remember best was visiting the detention center in Richmond, California. And it's being closed down now, um, if it hasn't already shut. But it, this was back in 2012 that I was, uh, I was training with this group. So we visited this detention center in Richmond, and I'd never really been around a prison before. And all I was really doing was, you know, going to the check-in desk, um, sitting in a training sort of in a conference room. And so my experience there was very benign, very removed from the actual detention experience. And yet I, I felt this, this tension, this um, anxiety being in that environment. And I can only imagine what that would be like if you were an undocumented person with um, very few resources, not knowing what your situation was going to be, not knowing what was going to happen to you. You also uh, probably had to learn, well, let me put it this way. What did you learn about first the fertility process and then the adoption process while you were preparing to write about Kavya and Rishi's attempts? So this is not something I had to deal with myself. I'm very lucky in that sense in terms of fertility. You know, I I was able to have my children um, without any treatments so my fertility research, you know, I, I have a lot of people in my life who have undergone fertility treatments. I spoke to them about what it was like. I, I really had to research the nuts and bolts of different types of fertility treatments and what actually physically happens. And I spoke to people, looked at blogs. I wanted to get a sense of emotionally how this journey looks, how it feels to want to have children and not be able to. Um, the most analogous situation in my own life was was having this book and not being able to get it published. And that is by no means the same as not being ha- not being able to have a child, but I found myself having some similar reactions. Like there was a time where I couldn't go into a bookstore and look at other people's books. And, you know, not feel the heartbreak for my own book. Mm. Um, I, I had analogous experiences. And so when I was trying to feel what Kavya was feeling, I, I, in some sense, plugged into those experiences. And in terms of the adoptive experience, the first thing I did when I, when I knew I was going to be writing this story was to send out a message to this thing called the Berkeley Parents Network. It's like a, a huge listserv. Um, to Bay Area parents. And I sent out an email basically saying, this is who I am and this is what I'm doing. And it would be really great if someone would be willing to talk to me about their experiences as, as an adoptive parent. And I got um, I got a handful of responses and, and a few people who were willing to talk to me and who were really open with their experiences and very welcoming and, and generous so um, a lot of this book came from 
the generosity of other people who were willing to share their expertise and their life experiences with me. Mm -hmm. So Shanti, we've been talking for all this time and we really haven't spoken about the lucky boy himself. So his mom calls him Nacho, such a cute name. And uh, Kavya and Rishi call him Iggy. Creating creating Ignacio as a character, the center of the story, must have been challenging. But you you gave him a personality. You also pretty much describe a normal day in the life of a new mother, complete with explosive diapers, acid cleanups, overwhelming exhaustion. Did I miss anything? How much how much of that came from real life? Yeah. So I was the mother of a two-year-old when I started um, writing this book. And so a lot of it came from daily experience. In terms of creating Ignacio as a character, that was a little tricky because, you know, he was, we see him from birth to about age two or three. So he's not going to have a lot of speaking presence, but he had to make his presence known. And I did want to give him a sort of personality, which as as parents, you know, anyone who's a parent knows that their child has a personality from the second that they're born. Um, and so I had to bring that out non-verbally for the most part with Ignacio. And being the mother of a two-year-old, those sleepless nights, those memories of, you know, waking up in the first few weeks of your child's life and, and having that sort of primal um, need to make sure that they're okay, to, to make sure that they're still breathing, that was all very familiar still. And a lot of the writing from the book in those first few days after Ignacio was born, um, a lot of that writing came from my own journals after my first child was born. Ah, it was very, very realistic. It reminded, reminded me also, and it was a long time ago. Um, really a, a beautiful, beautiful book. I enjoyed it. I just ran into a neighbor. I, uh, I think I told you that I've chosen this as my uh, book group selection for later in the month. And I read a lot. This book really struck me. And the neighbor, um, an older gentleman, said he was loving it. I was so interested. I said, well, even though it's all so much about um, women and women's issues and fertility and adoption and raising children. And he said, oh, it's about so much more than that. Right? Yeah, you know, that's that's what I think that's what a writer loves to hear that their book has reached someone who doesn't necessarily fall within the demographics of their characters that that it speaks beyond the scope of its plot and its logistics. So, Shafi, this has been so interesting and I have taken up a lot of your time and I'd like to end with a traditional the traditional new book question. What are you working on now? So now I'm, I have a couple projects going. I have been working on a new novel, uh, a completely different one from Lucky Boy, but I needed a break from that. So at the moment, I'm writing a book of middle grade fiction. So like ages eight to 12 around there, um, sort of corresponding with my own older son's age. And it's a book uh, that the current title is The Butterfly Rebellion. And it's again, about um, xenophobia and immigration, but in a way that I think is is empowering to children and is kind of adventurous and kind of funny. And I'm having a great time writing it. Well, 
Thank you so much for joining me today and best of luck in the next book and in all of your writing and teaching. Great. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me. And thank you for listening to this podcast from the New Books Network. Once again, I'm G.P. Gottlieb, host of New Books and Literature, and today I've been talking with Shanti Sakran about her novel, Lucky Boy. Join the New Books Network and learn both about my upcoming podcasts and those of other hosts in a variety of categories. Goodbye until my next conversation for the New Books Network.